Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Karen McNeil of the Wine Bible recently introduced the second edition, revised and updated. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Levy. How are you? Nice to have you on the show. Pleasure. So where'd you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Boston and then spent some years on the West Coast in Nevada and ultimately moved to New York as a young woman when I was 19. And what was the impetus for that? I suppose I had this idea, as many writers do, that back then anyway, you really needed to be in New York if you wanted to sort of forge your way as a writer. I'm quite sure I had no idea how difficult it was it was going to be. But nonetheless, I arrived on Thanksgiving Day in 1976 with $6 and the hope of being a writer. You knew at that point already that writing was the deal. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know if I could ever survive and and make a career of it, but I I really felt that writing had, in a sense, chosen me. I was I was compelled to write. So, even though I was a poor kid and and worked many jobs, you know, I would stay up late at night writing pieces and trying to get them published from the time I was fifteen. And where do you think that was coming from? Were there particular models you had in your mind, or? No, my family um, was uh, not well educated. No one in, I'm the first person to graduate from high school, never mind college. And there were no books in our house, none. Well, I guess there was one cookbook. But it, certainly a love of literature was, was not what my family was, was about. So, you know, that's an interesting question, right? I mean, where do those kinds of things come from? In all of us, we all have something that is a little inexplicable. Because I remember picking up like uh, Mansfield Park from Austin, you know, and thinking like, oh, this has like insights about life that are, I can apply. Like there are things in here, there's some knowledge in here that seem applicable to my own adolescence. Exactly. I mean, I, I do think that in a way books save a lot of teenagers, right? They sort of saved me too. And so I, I not only loved kind of living, quote unquote, inside the pages of a novel, but I also aspired to be one of those writers. And when you say one of those writers, are you talking about Kerouac or are you talking about like Edith Wharton or? 
You know, in the very beginning, uh, ironically enough, I loved Henry James. And Henry James is difficult to to read. And and I write nothing like Henry James. I write somewhat more like Hemingway in the sense of short sentences, very conversational. But Henry James had such an ability to capture the psychology of the scene and really tunnel down quickly into what was emotionally going on. And I, I just, I admired that. You know, when I lived in Boston, I found a lot of times people didn't, they weren't very good at verbalizing their feelings. Did the, that kind of writing help you kind of deal with some emotional scenes? Well, maybe. I, you know, I do think that language is, um, is a challenge. Part of the reason I think I love wine is because it's the biggest language challenge of them all, right? I mean, if we could all only put into words what we think about a wine, man, life would be better. Um, I mean, probably more than most people, I lie awake at night trying to figure out how to put a wine into words. But language is a big part of, of loving wine. And it's, you know, I feel like some days I just think to myself, damn it, it's so hard to do. But it's exactly that challenge that I, I love. And all of that stuff, the sophistication of James, the literature aspect, the learning, the old Europe, the wine side, all of that's very different than how you grew up. Very different than how I grew up. Um, my parents didn't drink wine, and another sort of inexplicable uh, part of childhood, but I even... As a 15-year-old, I loved it. So I, I drank wine every single night from the age of 15 on. You know, I was a pretty good kid. I'd sit there and do my homework with a glass of wine. So it wasn't exactly your typical childhood. But nonetheless, it seemed to me, even being a relatively unsophisticated kid at 15, it seemed to me like a very wonderful and civilized thing to do. Of course, I was buying 89-cent Bulgarian reds, right? And I only ever went to one wine store and only ever went when there was one wine clerk on who was a young woman and I knew wouldn't card me. Um, so for, you know, from But 15, you planned it out. Uh, I planned it out. From 15 to 21, drank wine every single day and have never once been carded. I think the first time I was carded, I was 40 or something. And at that point, it felt good <laughs> to be carded. I mean, it seems like you're good at planning things out, and it seems like you were probably very good at school. Yep, I was good at school. I mean, I was, you know, valedictorian of my high school, and I guess graduated seventh in my class at college. So I'm a pretty studious person. So you did a little adventuring before you came to New York, a little uh, cross-country type of thing. What was that like? For as much as I always loved school and was a studious person, I got a scholarship to college and started in college, uh, but then, you know, kind of one of the classic stories for women, I guess. You meet a man, he sweeps you off your feet, you decide to leave college. If you had grown-ups around you, they would have told you this is the worst thing you could possibly do. But I left scholarships, left college, and um, traveled around with him for um, for a number of years, actually, I'd made deals with all of my my professors to that I would send in. And this is in the old days when you literally sent your homework back in by mail, by U.S. mail. And um, I managed to graduate from college seventh in my class without barely ever going. 
That's um, somewhat amazing. <laughs> it was, uh, it was amazing. Wait. But you know, self-taught, right? I'm essentially self-taught in, in, in writing. I've never taken a writing class in wine. I don't have a degree. Um, but I believe that you can. These are two things, in fact, that you can teach yourself. So you get to New York in the 70s, and what's the scene like? New York was, in the 1970s, in bankruptcy. People forget how bad it was. I mean, the garbage wasn't being picked up on the streets of Columbus Avenue, I'll tell you. And I lived um, on what was then the verge of Harlem, the Upper West Side, where it was a little scary. I lived in a um, initially in Spanish Harlem in a fifth-floor walk-up, and then later on the sort of verge of Harlem proper in an eighth-floor walk-up. And it was, you know, for all that effort that it had taken me to sort of get myself to New York, I, I was quickly rather terrified once I got here because there was no leaving at that point. I didn't have enough money to leave. And New York was not the New York of today. It was a pretty scary place. Did you have a network of friends, people you knew? I knew no one. Um, so... I mean, I'm good at getting jobs, so I quickly got a number of jobs, and I'm a hard worker, so getting a job was not a problem, but it was terrifying, in part because I didn't have a safety net. I didn't know anyone. Luckily, New York is a big place, though, and in fact, even as lo alone as one might feel, you know, there are, in fact, thousands of people just like you who are also alone and trying to become artists or writers or singers or in some artistic field. So it was, in the end, the right place to be. What was your first job? So my first job was <laughs> within uh, 24 hours, I had three jobs. I worked in a restaurant as a bus girl. I worked, uh, that was in the afternoon. Did they have a lot of female bus girls back then? No, they did not. Um, in the morning, I worked at Mobile Oil Company, um, and I took that job largely based on the fact that if you worked for Mobile Oil in those days, they had a huge company cafeteria. And I was on food stamps. I mean, I, I had no money. And so a company cafeteria where you could eat a full meal for 35 cents was a big plus in my book. Um, and in those days at Mobile Oil, you could, you know, you went to their headquarters on 42nd Street and uh, 3rd Avenue. And... There was somewhere in that building a person, usually a girl, and you could say that you were going to travel to Phoenix. And that person would take out these huge mobile oil maps and draw you the routes to Phoenix, either, you know, the scenic route, the most direct route, etc. Anyway, that girl was me. I was in, the, in their so-called travel department. and uh, Kind of how we think of Michelin today. Yeah, exactly how we think of Michelin today. And then... In the late afternoon, I worked in, I thought this was pretty smart of me, actually, I worked in an employment agency as the receptionist, thinking that this would be a good way, right, to know, that to get a jump on good jobs kind of coming across the transom. Um, that was a little startling because there was, in fact, a whole huge underclass of unemployed people. And it, it actually made me even more nervous to see how many people sat, um, you know, desperate for a job. 
And then at the late, late night, I've always usually had about four jobs. So in the late, late night, I apprenticed myself to a literary agent. And my job for her was to read what is called the slush file. The slush file or the slush pile are unsolicited manuscripts that are sent to literary agents. Someone has to read them because out of every hundred manuscripts, there actually might be the next great writer. And so my job was to read all of these, both fiction and nonfiction works. And when there was something exceptional, point it out for the literary agent who would then read only that book. And did you find any, like, did you discover Borges or? Like, yeah, I didn't you, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're like, you know, no one had ever heard of Gabriel Garcia Marquez before <laughs> I came on. God, I wish I could say that. Uh, no, I didn't discover Gabriel, alas. But um, yeah, there were one or two. I don't know that those writers ever really went on. But what was amazing to me is you could really tell quickly good writing from bad writing. Boy, if you have to read a hundred manuscripts, unsolicited manuscripts every week. It helps hone your own skill as a writer. You you see what not to do. So that helped you with your own thing. Completely. And what was your move on that? What was what happened with the writing? So I eventually, as a result of being the receptionist in the employment agency, got my first job in the literary field, which was as an assistant editor at True Story, True Confessions, True Romance, True Love, and True Secrets. Well, at least it's all true. Huh? It's all true. Yep. And in their day, in the 1970s, this was the most successful publishing group in the United States. I mean, most people have never even heard of these, right? Um, but these magazines went to, they were written mostly at a third or fourth grade level, and went to women, for the most part, poor women, all over the United States. And it was a thriving magazine empire owned by a company called McFadden Women's Group. And uh, I think I got, let me think, how much did I get paid? Something like $89 a week. That's probably a fair amount, no? Oh, I w but here's what I was desperate for. If you could, there were a whole group of us who were the young assistant editors on each of the, the magazines. If you could write titles, you got paid $25 more a week. I was desperate to be good at titles. I needed that $25. I was terrible at titles. You know, they were, these were titles like, my man left me for my sister's dog, or sure. I don't know, right? I mean, they're all of these crazy sort of sexually uh, compelling titles, I sure, guess. Sure, sure. Titillation and Tuskegee, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. No titles for me, though. So that was the first job. Well, that, that doesn't seem like it set you back too far professionally. It seems <laughs> like you still made it through. Yes, I did make it through. You know, there are, there are skills that I learned, though, in that job that I use every single day. What are some of those? One of the things that I had to do when I applied for that job was to edit a manuscript. They just literally, you know, they don't ask, do you have a journalism degree in from Columbia? They say, here, write an essay on X and edit this manuscript Y. So I was a fluid writer because I, I mean, I wasn't a great writer, but I practiced a lot. So I was able to write the essay. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't struck with terror or something. And then with the manuscript, I realized, oh my God, I don't know editing, standard editing symbols. So I said to the person who was doing the interview, I don't know, you know, I don't know standard editing symbols, but 
I think I can get everything that's wrong in this manuscript. I can figure it out and, and get it right, but I'm not going to use the right terms, but I'll learn those. And in point of fact, I was able to edit the manuscript well using not standard terms. And the next thing she, I mean, she hired me the next day and sat me down and taught me editing symbols and how editors edit in a way that even just recently with the new wine Bible has helped. And I feel like that would be almost hard to find out now, you know, because I think a lot of those classic journalism classes have disappeared with this thought that, yeah. you know, people would be more interested in like how to build a blog or like right. in journalism school. I think so too. It's funny because I will often, um, in my own office, you know, a person who works for me will write something and I will edit it and, and have to teach them, you know, all of the symbols that editors use and how to follow a manuscript based on those notations, classic symbols that you need to to use when you edit professionally. So it's like learning the Kabbalah. That's what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. So what did you do next? I realized that, you know, while I liked working for the Trues, um, that's not where my great love was. And I, so I was trying to get published at night. I was collecting a lot of rejection slips. In fact, you know, I ultimately collected 324 rejection slips, which I thumbtacked to my little apartment wall. I feel like that gives you some power over it. Like it gives you some control over it to collect them. Yeah. I mean, it did in a way. I'm not sure I thought about it exactly that way then. Um, and it was kind of sad to tell you the truth, but nonetheless, I just thumbtacked them to the wall. And eventually... I got this idea in my head that instead of writing about, you know, politics and poetry and women's issues and, and sociology and all the various things that I was trying to write about, that I should write about food because light bulb goes on, right? I say to myself, wow, if you're interviewing someone about food, maybe they give you a taste of it. And I had always loved food, but remember, I'm still on food stamps at this point, so I'm desperately poor, and I'm, I see this as a way to solve the meal problem. Yeah, the hunger problem. The hunger problem. So I but begin... that's rather smart, right? It like, was. that's, I mean, that's <laughs> rather clever. That, I mean, several times here, right? We've come back to this. You've kind of seen a, a clever way to handle the situation. No? Yeah, well, I, it, it worked because people did indeed, right? You could go up to some, you know, Jewish deli guy and, and interview him about what is lox? How is it different than smoked salmon? And before you knew it, you were there talking with him, getting the whole history of lox and smoked salmon and tasting every example of it. So it was, uh, it was great. It was so great. I loved it. And perhaps it was the excitement of finally really finding an area that I both loved doing the doing the research, loved doing the writing, that eventually my first piece did sell to the Village Voice on butter, which is a kind of a funny thing for your first article to be on. But in those days in New York, butter was sold in big blocks, like two feet by three feet blocks. And again, these Jewish deli men would, because these were often sold, the best butters were sold in Jewish delis, and they would take out this big, big knife that was 
much bigger than, let's say, a sushi knife today, almost like a cleaver, and hack off these big chunks of butter, which they would put on big sheets of wax paper. And you would take home this fresh churned butter, often from a farm in the Hudson Valley, just north of here, north of New York City. And this butter was delicious, absolutely great. That sounds freaking great. Oh, it was so good. And and just a piece of great bread and that butter and some salt was enough to you know sustain you. That and a glass of wine, you could live for a week. So I went all over the city interviewing these guys and figuring out where the best butters were. And the Village Voice took that piece. I got paid $30. That was a fair amount of money or no? I was thrilled. Yeah. It was the best $30. Ever. Did you write for them regularly after that? Or? Yes. So then I started writing for them. And the way writing works is once your foot is in the door, really, the door opens. At first, it sort of creaks open, but then it just really flies open. So with the village voice behind me, then I began writing for King Features Syndicate and eventually for Travel and Leisure and, and sort of on my way, then various women's magazines and kind of up the scale up to the New York Times. Where did the wine part come in? I mean, you know, you're doing food. Where does that segue to wine? So I'm about 20, 21 at this point. And um, what was the legal drinking age? Oh, 21, probably. Who knows? I've been drinking since I was 15. Yeah, yeah. You're like 14, I think. (laughs) Right, exactly. So as I was writing about food, I realized that, you know, the food world of experts and writers was very highly segmented. There were writers who kind of owned, quote unquote, Moroccan cuisine. And then there were famous writers who always wrote about Italy. And and I remember at one point, someone said to me, you know, you need to, if you're a food writer, you better claim your territory and become an expert on that, you know, become an expert in Southern French cooking or whatever, but choose something. And I remember thinking, what I really loved about food was not sort of only the recipes of a place, but I loved the whole world of gastronomy. I loved dining behavior and the invention of manners and how restaurants evolved and how food intersected with culture. And and so I began to study gastronomy, the larger idea. And of course, gastronomy involves not just food, right? It involves beverages. So I began studying tea, coffee, and wine, the big three. And in particular, wine was really hard to learn about in the 1970s. There were no wine schools in New York. There were no tastings that anyone in the public could go to. Retail stores certainly didn't taste their customers with on wine. And so as much as I wanted to learn about wine, it was a completely blocked road. Wine was sort of controlled by five men Um, all of the European producers would fly in and do tastings for just these five guys. And those five guys wrote about wine for every single publication, from New York Magazine to the New York Times. Every publication was sewn up. So there was no way to learn, no way to break in, no way, no way to taste. And I thought, wow, this is this is really this is this is (laughs) this isn't a glass ceiling, but it's a complete dead end. There were also no women in the wine business back then, except for one. And we've moved into the 80s? Yep, we've moved into the 80s now. So as luck would have it, one of these men uh, knew that I was desperate to learn about wine. 
and kind of on the pretext of my being young and, you know, kind of a guppy about all of these things. Like you were into it and you'd sucked up the information and you seem excited about it. I was very excited about it and he knew I was desperate to taste. So he convinced the other guys that they should let me taste with them. That seems like a, a big thing for him to do. It was huge. And for the next eight years, I tasted with these guys. And of course, I was desperate to ask them questions. But kind of the silent agreement was, no, you can be present, but you may not, don't talk, don't ask questions, don't do anything like that. Just be there and be uh, uh, invisible. You had to know your place. Right. So I did. And it was okay with me, even though I was really desperate to ask them questions. All of the basic questions. Who was the nice guy? So uh, actually, that nice guy was a man named John Gottfried, who was writing a lot about wine in those days and eventually moved more into the food world. Still lives in the village. Many of the other men actually have passed away. Alex Bespaloff, Frank Pryle. But what I learned from these men was an unbelievable sense of discipline because I watched how they tasted. There was no chit-chat. It wasn't fun or funny. You know, you concentrated on the wine, you took your pen out, you were silent, and you wrote. And even though I had no idea what to write, I wound up over that eight years sort of teaching myself how to think about wine by virtue of all this incredible tasting opportunity that I was having. And what are we talking about here? I mean, who's coming to do tastings? Piero Antonori coming to taste us on all of the Antonori wines, the port producers coming to taste us on all the recent vintage ports, the Grand Cru's of Bordeaux coming. I mean, it was the kinds of tastings that you would just die to do. And as a young woman, I mean, I was really conscious of how lucky I was. After about eight years, I got up my nerve to write my first wine piece. because Really? That's how long it was? Yeah. It was eight years of study. Yeah. Eight years of tasting with these guys. And then, I mean, I considered myself a food writer still. Right. And you are making a fair living on this. I was making a living as a food writer. And so... You had a hesitancy to talk about a subject you didn't know well? Yes, that's right. I mean, I felt like, well... There were two things. Number one, I didn't want to bite the hand that had fed me, right? These guys, was I going to go to the editor of New York Magazine when Alex Bezpaloff himself had allowed me to taste with him for years? It was his territory. I was certainly not going to do that. And I also felt like, well, it might be eight years, but these guys have spent lifetimes. They are still way, way, way ahead of me. So As luck would have it, the 80s was also uh, a great time for publishing. Lots of magazines come on the scene, things like Esquire and Elle and all these new hip lifestyle magazines, and they didn't have wine writers yet. And And some of those were women's publications, And some of those were women's publications. Like Ms. Magazine. Right, exactly. Like that's the go time for that kind of publication, right? Totally. So I took my chances and began with women's magazines. And funnily enough, after I wrote my first few pieces, which were for a magazine called Mirabella, now out of business, and and Elle, um, the editors began to call me and say, would you write about wine for us? And I would say, no, I won't. I'm, I'm a food writer. And they almost to a one would say, but we like the way you write about wine. 
They wanted a fresher voice, basically. Someone younger, female, different perspective. I think a younger, female, conversational voice. Because all of the great guys of wine were writing the way British men wrote about wine, which is assumed a certain literacy in European geography, assumed a certain literacy in in winemaking. And I I didn't assume any of those things. I explained everything. Do you think working for those true titles kind of helped you do that? Like the realization that there was a huge audience out there that maybe wasn't sophisticated and they need to be communicated to as well? You know, I've always believed that my audience is a smart audience who are smart people who just don't happen to know about wine. Who didn't get maybe the opportunity that you got, right? Right. And so if you can explain wine in a way that is not dumbing down, but that is progressive, like first X happens, then Y happens. And you might wonder why C doesn't happen, but it never happens. And here's why. If you could intellectually take someone through through the, the basics of wine without talking down to them, then that would be really, that's the audience that I wanted. And as it turned out, was pretty good at talking to. So the 80s were the rise of women's magazines, but it was also the rise of the new world and varietally labeled wines. Was that affecting your life or the things you were covering? Yes and no. Certainly California wines back then were easy to understand because they were labeled by variety. But but back then it was still considered important for anyone who knew wine. They really had to understand Europe. I mean, if you didn't have a familiarity with Vouvray, God forbid, right? You just weren't a wine person. Today, we wouldn't even think that, right? We, we wouldn't necessarily assume that you would have a complete familiarity with every major area. Did you start to see wine as being a global thing? Like it wasn't just Bordeaux, Burgundy, and the Rhine anymore, but now it was New Zealand, Australia. Yeah, it's so interesting that when I, when I first got a contract with Workman to to do a book, and I decided they they said, write it on anything you want, actually. And really? It, that seems like a lot of trust. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. I, I, you know, I wanted to genuflect. I mean, it just does not happen. And they assumed that I was going to say a place in the world, a type of food or, or a recipe book. and Tuscan I, Reds, yeah. something like that. And when I said wine, um, I mean, they, they thought it was absolutely going to be a food book. So um, anyway, in starting to do the research for the, what would become the Wine Bible, one of the great men in the wine industry back then, Peter Sechel, said to me, oh, I've written a book on wines of the world, and I'll, I'll hunt down a copy and see if, if I have an extra copy, I'll send it to you. And I thought, oh, gosh, that'd be great, because I was in a big research mode collecting everything I could by way of research. Anyway, after a few months, a book, a package arrives from Peter Sechel. Here's the book, The Great Wines of the World. One chapter on France, one chapter on Germany, and one chapter called Other. That was in the early 1980s, from the 50s, actually from the Second World War right up until the 80s, the wines of the world were considered essentially France and Germany. Spain and Italy were considered peasant wine regions, and, and that term was actually used to describe them. Argentina and Chile didn't even appear in these books. California maybe had a paragraph, 
And something like port was given special consideration under fortified wines. But really, the world was not the world of wine that we know today. It is so much bigger. So there was some room to document some of these new regions that were coming up. There was a lot of room. And, and even with this second edition of the Wine Bible that came out yesterday, there are whole new chapters on Asia, in particular on China, on Mexico, Canada, greatly expanded, Slovenia, Republic of Georgia. These are all places that in the last 10 years have become far more important than they were 10 years ago. Because it's been 10 years since you published the original book. Yes, it's actually been 14 years. Um, but, you know, it takes a long time. I, I do all my own primary research. And so this new wine Bible, the second edition, took four years. It's an entirely new book. So it's not a fast. I'm not fast, but um, hopefully it's good. Well, it worked out pretty well last time. It did work out well last time. So when did you decide you were going to write a book? At what point? there in the 80s, did you say, you know, maybe a book? What happened was that in 1991, the MW, the Master of Wine program, came to New York for the first time that year. In 1990, no one had even barely heard of the MW program. And the MWs in London, of course, knew this, and they were anxious to sort of become a more global organization. And they started with New York, and so a series of MWs came over and they gave a week-long class to, they invited 150 of the top wine people in New York to take this week-long class and learn about the MW program and then take a test at the end and either be accepted into the program or, or not. So I was one of those 150 people. And after a week, I then, as did everyone else, took what was, for me, the hardest wine test I ever could ever even imagine taking. Out of that group of people, most of whom I would have considered much smarter than me and much more wine knowledgeable than me, 15 people were accepted, passed the exam, and were accepted into the MW program. And much to my surprise, I was one of those 15. Um, that exact same month, Peter Workman said, you can write any book you want to write. And I said... I want to write a book about wine. And he paused for a minute and said, well, all right, we want you. So write a book about wine. And so I had a decision in my own mind to make. I could either pursue an MW or I could write a book. It seemed to me that I couldn't do both of them. It would just be too sheer hard to do both. Not to mention expensive, right? Because it costs a lot to study for the MW. You have to buy all these wines. It costs a lot to write a book. No one, the publisher doesn't give you money to buy wine. So I decided that I would write the Wine Bible on the theory that it would be a good way, a sort of backdoor way of studying for the MW anyway. Um, that seems like a very Karen thing to do. Like the very Karen <laughs> way to look at it. I'm, I'm going to do all this wine tasting and then make a book out of it. And then at the same time, that's the, I mean. Yeah, no, it was, it was sort of a classic Karen thing to do. But it also sounds like you ended up writing the book that you had wanted to find. I did. That's exactly. The Wine Bible was the book that I wished I had had. And it took, I thought it would take a year or two to write. And then I'd be, okay, good. I would have done all the research. I'd be back in the MW program. Little did I know. I mean, the first Wine Bible took 10 years to write. But in part, people might 
think, wow, that seems like such a long time. I have to remember that every fact in that book, and there are, you know, 40,000 of them, had to be fact-checked in person or by telephone or later by fax. There was no internet. There, there wasn't Google. You didn't look up how many producers are there in Hungary. We had, in my, uh, I worked out of my apartment in New York at that time, we had 40 running feet of transfile boxes of faxes from winemakers around the world. It was, it was just a mammoth research project. So this new, new wine Bible has only taken me four years. I'm twice as fast, thanks to the internet. But how did the project evolve over those 10 years? I mean, first of all, did the publisher realize it was going to take 10 years? No, the contract said, can you, and in fact, the contract said that I would deliver it in a year. And when a year was up, Peter Workman said, so, you know, uh, where's the manuscript? And I said, Peter, you know, it's a much bigger book than what we even originally thought about. And he said, all right, but you are working on it, right? You're not in your pajamas or something. Yeah, you're not just like out on the town. I said, no, no, I'm really working on it. And it's really, I think it's going to be pretty good, but it's going to take a lot longer. And every year, once a year, we would go out to dinner or he would call me and say, just tell me you're not in your pajamas. I'd be like, Peter, I'm not in my pajamas. It's, I'm really working on it. And when the, when I finally brought him the manuscript 10 years later, I mean, you can. In pajamas? Were you wearing pajamas? Because that'd be pretty funny if you were like, hey, I got these now. I should have. Um, But he looked at the manuscript and he said, oh my God, this is the wine Bible. And I, you know, my eyes just lit up because I said, oh, well, you know, but we can't call it that. And he said, no, that's exactly what we're going to call it. And I said, no, absolutely not. First of all, I mean, how will that play, right? Right. I, I, I have a think, lot of Jewish friends. I have a lot of Jewish friends. Yeah. And this is New York, number one, and number not just Jews, but everybody else too. And, um, and that's also a big statement, right? I was not ready to make that statement. And I said, so I said, absolutely not. And he just looked at me and he said, well, uh, clearly you didn't read your contract because you don't get a vote on this. I'm happy to hear what you think, but the title of a book is considered part of the book's marketing. You are a subject expert, but you're not a marketing expert. So I get to decide on the title of the book, not you. I was horrified. I didn't, I really hadn't read that in the contract, but he was right. And he, he said to me, I trusted you that whole 10 years when you said to me, you, it wasn't done yet. And now it's time for you to trust me. It was like, I only gave God seven days to create the universe. And I gave you 10 years (laughs) to write this book. So exactly. So out comes the wine Bible. I mean, I guess that was uh, probably a lot more persuasive than the wine leaflet, right? Yes. Yes. And, and he was right. I mean, he's a brilliant marketer and he was absolutely right. How many copies of that book have sold? So the first and only original edition has sold 750,000 copies. The wine book average in the United States is 10,000 copies. So it's done incredibly well. And we hope that the second edition will be, will even surpass the first edition because it's actually a much better book. So I've got my fingers crossed. And why do you think it's a better book? 
you know, sometimes people say, what does it have that the old wine Bible doesn't? And of course, it does have, as we were talking about, you know, China, Slovenia, et cetera, et cetera. But the real reason is, I'm a better teacher now. Um, people loved the first wine Bible, they told me, because it was the first book that they used to learn about wine. And I was a pretty good teacher then, but I'm an even better teacher now, and I'm a better writer now. So I think it's just vastly better. Do you ever read old chapters of the Wine Bible, the original, and just kind of cringe and be like, I can't believe <laughs> that's what I said? Uh, I, don't, I don't cringe exactly, but I do think to myself, oh, you know, I know exactly how to fix this a bit and make this even, even better, even clearer. So, and of course, every, but I rewrote every single chapter. Some things didn't change, right? What makes Bordeaux tick is not different than it was 10 years ago. But a lot of, let's say, who you really need to know about in Mendoza, those things have changed a lot. And certainly, you know, the idea that some of the greatest wines in the New World are on the cusp of the Gobi Desert in Ningxia, China, that has really changed. So I think it's a very good book, I, I hope. One of the things I've always found really hard personally is to actually, in a kind of easy way, sum up all the nuances of the topic. Because, uh, you know, you don't want to be, it's easy to be general and slightly wrong. You know, it's easy to make a general statement that doesn't include that one guy who does it differently in that spot. And it's hard to come up with a general statement that's actually fully correct and still breezy, right? It is. I mean, one of the works of a journalist when you are in all of these places is to figure out the what is. Because every producer says to you, oh, yeah, here's how Amarone is made, right? You're at the next winery and they say, oh, here's how Amarone is made. And, you know, you probably have to visit 20 to get a really good feel for, aha, here's what's classic. Here's what's innovative. Here's what's off the wall. And so somebody has to do that work. You cannot take sort of the word of any single producer anywhere as a good factual description of the what is. You have to do that journalistic work. But then you can say, and here you can say with some degree of confidence. So here's what does appear to be classic, and here's what does appear to be delicious, but totally off the wall. What were some of the stylistic points of the original wine Bible that really caught on with people? I've always noticed how it used a lot of sidebars and took you in different places on the same page. But what do you think was successful about it? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that was successful about it was that when it came out in 2001, at that point, much wine writing was really gray, really stripped down, really just gray page after gray page of rather predictable, not very well written wine writing. And I had always loved wine because it was part of culture and history and religion and architecture and every aspect of a place's fabric of their overall culture and part of gastronomy. So I put all that stuff back in. It was, you know, the first American wine book that that had big sections on food and culture and the sociology of a place and kind of the uh, emotional underpinnings of of a wine region, what made Spaniards so different than Italians, right? 
And I believe you have to know that stuff to really understand the wines of a place, or at least it helps to know all that stuff. It turns out it's also fascinating. It helps you read through why Amarone is Amarone, the technical aspect of how it's made, to, for a second, read this fantastically fun side box on how the original wine and food pairing with Amarone was horse meat, right? I mean, it's all of a sudden you're in a taverna in the Veneto at midnight, drinking this wine, freezing cold, eating baked horse meat, and it something about that experience comes alive. It's it's not about a score. It's but it's also not just dry wine writing. It's highly cultural wine writing. So I think that was important. I also think I have a very simple voice, an American voice. Um, I didn't come out of the British school system in the 1950s. And I th- people tell me all the time that the wine Bible was just so easy to read. You felt like someone was talking to you, having a conversation with you instead of somewhat lecturing you. During the period of time that you're writing this book is the 90s, and that's the period of time when capsule reviews that are basically tasting notes take over the world. And at the same time, that same period of time that people say doesn't exist anymore, where you had high authority figure critics taking over the world. Yeah. And so you're saying you were offering an alternative to both of those things. Not that I, yes, but not that I thought about it that way. I never saw myself as being in competition with critics. I have a, a, a large degree of respect for all of our living critics. I think they've done many, many great things. I just had a different way. You know, interestingly enough, though, people will say to me, you know, when I was writing both Wine Bible 1 and Wine Bible 2, people would say, oh, man, did you did you read this big dust up between Chances Robinson and Bob Parker? And I would think, no. I mean, I was so out of touch because during the writing of both of those books, I would not let myself read other wine writers oh, or, is that true? or critics. I never read critics. I was so in the dark because I was afraid. I didn't want their thinking to influence mine, even subconsciously. And, you know, I have my own voice and I didn't want my own voice to be influenced even obliquely by the voice of someone else. And that's really easy for a writer for, to happen to a writer. You have to really almost go into a very, a place of great solitude to protect your own voice. Sounds like the editorial process wasn't back and forth with the editorial board with people telling you, hey, Karen, you know, that first paragraph, you should restrike that and do it this way. And have you thought about, so it sounds like it really was a solitary process. It was a very solitary process. I mean, for the 10 years of, of writing the first wine Bible, you know, I wrote it with my dogs sitting on the floor and they were the only people I, you know, every now and then I would say to one of them, you know, what do you think about Chateau Neuf de Pop, right? But uh, book editors don't hold your hand like that. They don't want to talk to you every day. I didn't want to talk to anybody else because I wasn't ready yet. I didn't want to read anybody else because I didn't want their head in my head. So it, it, it ends up that it is a very solitary process. When you look back at it, I mean, what does it tell you about you from that time? And what do you see about it that wasn't clear to you when you wrote it? I think it tells me that I'm, I'm a very disciplined researcher. 
And I realized that a lot of writers, either because they're writing so fast or because they're not at, you know, researchers at heart, they wind up writing something that is a mistake that goes through all kinds of books, articles, you see it over and over again. And I think, wow, I, I know who made that original mistake. And I can see that X person copied Y person, copied Z person. So one of the things I learned to not do and I learned about myself is that I really like to get the story. And I will tell you a, one fun story from of the New Wine Bible that is not in the New Wine Bible because I spent months and months and months and could not find the answer to this, which is why is a case a case, right? Why is a case configured three bottles by four bottles? Why 12 bottles? Why in that three by four configuration? When did cases begin? What was the first winery to use a case, to sell wine in cases? I mean, that's a, like a classic little side box in the wine Bible. And I desperately wanted to write that side box because I knew that no one had ever written. And I, I love little tidbits like that, right? Fascinating facts about, about wine, wine industry, history. And no one knows the answer to that. I mean, the closest you can get is either something mystical, right? The 12 apostles, the 12 months of a calendar, a dozen eggs. I mean, the number 12 is important in history. Um, or something practical. Three by four is a physically stable number for stacking cases. It's also, you can wrap your arms around it. One healthy man can carry a case with no wasted energy and without killing himself doing so. So there's some practical aspect to it. But ultimately, no one knows the answer to that. And I, you know, I'll still probably keep researching that because I do love that process. It sounds a lot to me like during that eight-year period of tasting, you had some questions in your mind that you felt like you couldn't ask the people in the room. And you sort of kept all those questions and then tried to find the answers to them and put them in a book. That's exactly what I did. And instead of writing the answers, as I was writing, I imagined a person sitting across from me and told them the story of wine. This was a fictional person. It happened to be a woman who was intelligent but knew nothing about wine, and a woman who was about 40. And the Wine Bible was entirely told to this fictional character. Does she have a name? She doesn't. Do you still talk with her? Uh, yes, in fact, I do. For writing the second Wine Bible, when I, if I would ever get stuck and I would think, well, I don't think I'm really getting this right, I would go back to my tried-and-true system, stop writing it, sit back, and tell the story of it to someone. It helped you to have a specific idea of what the audience was. Yes, it does. And, you know, during that period of time, by the way, I, I love the, the dummy series. Um, you know, God knows we've all probably got one dummies book here or there. But I remember thinking, that's exactly what I don't want to do. I want to write the wine book for smart people. To empower them. Yeah, not the wine book for dummies. Anyway, the wine book for dummies was already taken by my <laughs> friend Mary Mulligan and her, her husband, Ed McCarthy. But still, the person I imagined was a, was a smart person. It seems like you made some friendships along that period of time when you were writing that book. Like, for example, Kevin Zarali seems like he's always been really supportive. 
Kevin's a wonderful man. And uh, yes, we both, we are the same age. We started at the same time. We both had a, a sort of verbal knack for describing wine. Um, neither one of us was really geeky about it. So we've always been supportive of one another. And when Kevin first started the Windows on the World Wine School, he was so successful. I mean, he's such a dynamic teacher, right? He's probably the single best wine teacher on the globe, bar none. He asked me to be his substitute teacher. Well, you can imagine how this is terrifying. How can you follow Kevin Zraeli? He is the best. And so it was, man, it was trial by fire, but I ultimately learned my own teaching style. So what's that? So like Kevin, I think I know how to engage an audience when I'm teaching, and I never work from pre-prepared notes. But my way of teaching is maybe slightly more academic than Kevin's. Kevin is the ultimate entertainer, and I'm a little bit more... Uh, let's figure out why M is true. We're going to start understanding why K and L are true, and we're going all the way back to why A exists. So I'm probably a slightly more academic teacher than he is. So what were you up to in between the publication of the two books? So my business is not only writing. I teach a lot. I do a, a lot of teaching for consumers and professionals in the business. But my main business is what we call around the office corporate consulting. So large firms, Lexus, UBS, Merrill Lynch, lots of law firms, biotech firms, tech firms hire me to do private seminars for them and private wine dinners as a way of entertaining their clientele. So for example, UBS it's wealth management group, people who have 50 million and above invested with UBS, will take all of those people out. And instead of just taking them to dinner, I'll do some kind of a phenomenal, you know, hopefully drop dead wine tasting, followed by this amazing wine and food pairing dinner. So it's a very small uh, business. There aren't many people who, who do that. It's hard to get those gigs. But I've had unbelievably great top clients. I mean, names that, you know, like GE or like Lexus or UBS or Merrill Lynch that everyone would know. So how do you get people like that excited about wine in particular, especially if they're not already? Yeah, it's you realize that pretty quickly is that you're using wine as a as a prop and you've got a few simple messages, but it you're not talking to sommeliers, right? You're talking to GE executives. And so a lot of it is entertainment. A lot of it is taking classic themes in history and telling the story of those themes through wine. So for example, I'll give you the example of Lexus a few years ago was telling me that their key words for the year were discernment and distinction and power and and that these were the three words they were going to use with their sales force to sell more lexus cars etc cetera, etc cetera. i said let me take those three words i'll do the most phenomenal wine seminar you've ever had on those three words so some of it is taking your cue from the company itself from the corporation and 
working those themes through the story of wine. I guess that plays into the next question, which is, did the audience for wine change at the period of time when you're writing the second book? Did you feel like, you know, who was out there as a reader of this kind of book had changed somehow since the previous book? I mean, in the sense that there are so many people now who are interested in wine. When the first Wine Bible came out in 2001, it wasn't exactly a desert, but I wasn't, I mean, I thought maybe I'd sell 25 copies, really, and only to friends of mine. I, I didn't, I had written the book for myself as a, as a learning vehicle. I hadn't written it with the idea of sales. And now, though, God, that world is so exciting and vibrant, right? Wherever you go, every city in America, for that matter, every large city in Asia, incredible excitement about wine. So the new Wine Bible arrives into a vastly different world. And it's tremendously exciting for me because, wow, here are all these, you know, smart, engaged, highly experimental people who love wine. It's, it's couldn't be better. So... The internet happens in a big way, and how does that affect a book, you know, and also one that has sidebars and that takes you in different directions simultaneously on the same page, and maybe the audience has read a little bit about some of these themes before, randomly, or, you know, how does that affect you? Well, this Wine Bible will have an ebook as well, and the first one was not, so that alone will be very helpful. You know, I find, though, that even though theoretically every, virtually everything in the New Wine Bible you could probably find on your own, but the idea that one person who you've, whose voice you've come to know and whose research you've come, hopefully, to trust has gathered all of this information into one place is, I think, really relieving for people. A lot of people say to me, you know, I, I, I have a copy of the Wine Bible in the trunk of my car, right? Whenever I need to know something about wine, it's just so great to have that one place to go. You don't have to go on and read 10 million Wikipedia entries. You don't have to read a thousand other writers and lots of producers' websites. I mean, it can be hard to do that kind of research. So the internet has... I don't think will, in a sense, take readers away from me. If, if anything, it has generated so much excitement about wine, it's created a bigger audience of people who love reading about wine. What else do readers tell you when they talk to you in person? I mean, what do you hear about these books? The comment that I hear more than any other comment is, this was my first wine book, and this was the book that caused me to fall in love with wine. So that must be gratifying. Oh, I want to cry. It's fabulous. That probably happens a lot. Because, I mean, 750, that's almost a million books. Yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly gratifying. What did that basis of selling all those books really allow for you to do practically? How did that change your life? Well, it, you know, I'd like to be able to say that it made me a millionaire or something. It didn't. You, you know, writing, That's sort of disappointing, actually. It is, hearing I that. know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because writing still, you know, you can be very, unless you're who knows what, you know, Robert Ludlum or something, you have to sell literally, money is when you sell 10 million books. So it's all right. I was never in it 
not in writing anyway, for, for the money. Um, what it does do, though, what the way that it does change your life is that you have unbelievable access to anyone in the world. People know that you're serious. Wineries themselves like to be um, interviewed by serious people. So it gives you a kind of access to to people and to wines that when you're first starting out, it can be hard. So that part of it is wonderful. You didn't and have to go to other people's tastings anymore. I didn't have to go to, no, I can be. And you know, I pay it forward in the sense that in my office, we always have a lot of young tasters, people who are just learning about wine. And none of them are allowed to ask a question. They're no. all allowed to ask all the questions they want. But, you know, we taste many thousands of dollars worth of wine um, every year. And I know that these kids cannot afford that wine. And so it's it's important to me to be the person who can give them the environment to uh, to taste. So you have the second book out. It must be a nice feeling after, again, a few years of doing it. You're about to tackle the ebook side of it. But once you get through that, what's up? What are you going to do after that? Yeah, I don't, it feels so odd, right? I, I, I almost don't know what to do with myself because when you're writing four hours a day plus running your own business, you're, you know what to do with yourself. You're always behind. Now I, I feel like, wow, okay, it's time to start a new book. I'm toying with the idea of writing something on spirits. I've never written on spirits before. I love great spirits as well as wine. I know less about spirits than I know about wine, but but I think that could be fixed. So we'll see. I, I don't know. Karen McNeil has found several ways to fix holes in her own education and those of millions of others. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Karen McNeil's The Wine Bible was recently released in its second edition. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.